and most of my growing up years were spent in what is called the Cedar, Bre- Cedar Breaks in uh, South Dallas County. I went to um, a little school, Duncanville School, in the town of Duncanville, Texas, uh, that had 100 students in K through 12th grade. Um, when I was in the ninth grade, I befriended a young man by the name of Chuck Hahn. Our place was about two miles from Duncanville, and I had a bicycle that looked like a stripped-down version of Pee Wee Herman's Schwinn. I took the tank off and the uh, fenders and sawed a few parts off to make it a little bit lighter. And I used to pump that thing. I mean, gears were unknown back then. You know, you you just uh, toughed it out till your legs burned so bad you had to get off and walk. And uh, I pumped that thing to school every day, weather permitting. And I used to pass by the Han farm. Uh, Chuck used to fall in along with me and ride his bike uh, onto school and. We got to be pretty good friends. To my shame, I was a little bit embarrassed by Chuck because he's the kind of person that nobody liked at school. And I think when I went to school, I ignored him. But uh, off campus, he was a good friend. One of these guys that could never do anything right. Uh, He was usually failing a class or two. He was always in trouble with teachers at school. Uh, He tried real hard. He just could never get anything right. He'd go out for various sports, never make the team. Just a really kind of a pitiful young man. Knowing what I know now about families, I think his family was what we would call today severely dysfunctional. Uh, I think his mother was the victim of spousal abuse. I think probably Chuck himself was a battered, molested child. And uh, I'll never forget one day when I, I went by the farm... It was one afternoon, actually, after school. And uh, Chuck wasn't around, so I asked his mother where he was, and she said he's around behind the barn. So I went around behind the barn. Chuck was shooting baskets. He had a jerry-rigged uh, basketball court back there, just a backboard that he'd made out of wood, and then a hoop made out of wire, and he was back there shooting baskets, practicing free throws and crying. I've never forgotten that. Trying and crying. And uh, it just strikes me that a lot of you probably feel that way this morning. You have tried so hard to be nice. You've wanted to do things right, and you just can't get it right. You're like like Chuck. The harder you try, the worse things become, and uh, you're probably on the verge of giving up. Nothing seems to be working well for you. Well, I, I, I have a word of comfort. A word of encouragement for you. It's the word that we've been reading in Hebrews. I want to go back and reread a section from the paragraph that we read last week. Hebrews 9, verse 11. About Christ who came as a high priest of the good things that are already here. That is this new covenant, this new arrangement for living that we've been talking about. When he did that, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that's not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all. By his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. 
The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they're outwardly clean. How much more then? Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? And as I pointed out last week, the acts that lead to death are not acts of immorality. They're efforts to try to please God by keeping the law. And all that does is kill you. It leads to death. That's what some of you are trying to do. You're trying so hard and you're dying. And you're crying inside. Perhaps no one knows. But uh, you know how you feel. You're just not getting it right. I want to tell you the good news. God never expected you to get it right. Never. He never planned on it. He's the ultimate realist. He knows, you know, he knows the stuff of which we're made. When he gave the law to Israel, he made it uh, abundantly clear that, that he didn't, didn't expect anyone to keep the law because he immediately, after giving the law, sprinkled everything with blood. He sprinkled the book. He sprinkled uh, the people. Sprinkled everything in sight with blood as a, a sort of token advance notice that I, I really don't expect you to, to live up to the demands of the law you're forgiven before you already begin. The law was never given to make people righteous. The law is righteous. There's nothing wrong with the law. It's not nearly, merely a set of conventions. The law is right because the author of the law is right. It's perfect. But it, it never changed anyone, and it can never change me, and it can never change you. And, and if we think it well, we, we just don't understand. There has to be something else that God does for us, and that's what we've been talking about in, the, in these last few chapters in the book of Hebrews. God had to make a new arrangement, a new agreement. That's why the writer goes on to say, for this reason. What reason? Well, because we were all engaged in acts that led to death. We were trying to keep the law for this reason. Christ is the mediator of a new will. A new last will and testament. A new arrangement. Uh, there's a certain amount of ambiguity in, in the Greek word for covenant. It also means a will. And so he's going to be playing on this idea of a legacy, a last will and testament, throughout the rest of the paragraph. For this reason, Christ is the mediator, he's the means by which we receive this new settlement, this new arrangement, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. You see, God the Father has everything in heaven and earth under his name. He owns it all, and he wants to give it. He's always wanted to give. That's, that's the nature of God. For God so loved the world that he gave. He wants to give. He wants to give everything that he has at his disposal. And that's what he promised. Those who are called, and as remember earlier in Hebrews, he talked about those who are called with a heavenly calling, those who are called to go to heaven and live with him forever. It's those of us that have put our faith in Jesus Christ. Those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant 
Let me tell you a little bit about this uh, new covenant. The old covenant we know was the covenant that was given at Sinai. That was the law that came down from the mountain on the tablets. The new covenant is something else. It's this new arrangement for living, which uh, the writer describes for us in chapter 8, quoting Jeremiah 31. I'll put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. In other words, we will have an inner grasp of truth. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord because they'll all know me. That is, we'll have an intimate knowledge of God. And then the bottom line for us, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. That's this new arrangement. I want to say three things about it. First, first it's predicted. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't that God started out to make people righteous by means of the law and then he came to realize that we're made out of, uh, out of dust and we can't measure up and so he changed his mind and, and moved in another direction. The purpose of the law was never to make anyone good. All the law ever did is drive people to the end of themselves. As Galatians puts it, the law is a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. It's when we realize how sinful we are and how desperately in need of salvation we are that we start looking for salvation in Christ. So it wasn't, it wasn't an afterthought. It was planned from the very beginning. Uh, Hosea, who's an 8th century prophet, put it this way. He said, God, one of these days, God's going to make a covenant with Israel. And uh, you will no longer refer to God as Baali. It's a Hebrew word for my Baal. You see, at the time Hosea wrote, the Israelites were sacrificing to the Baals, the, the local gods that uh, the people of the ancient Near East uh, worshipped. He said, you no longer refer to me as Baali, my Baal. You'll refer to me as Ishi, which means my man, my main man. He would turn their heart away from the idols and, and they would become devoted and in love with God. That's the new covenant that was predicted. Eighth century B.C. And then uh, it was predicted again in the book of Isaiah. Who, uh, Isaiah was Hosea's contemporary. And, and then uh, in Jeremiah, in the passage which we read in chapter 8, which he quotes. And then in Zechariah, who's was a fifth century B.C. prophet, uh, the prophet said, God is going to take away the guilt of Israel in one day. One day. And that's the day we refer to as Good Friday. And then in Malachi, the last of the Old Testament prophets, who wrote in the 5th century, middle of the 5th century B.C., Malachi prophes prophesied that someday the messenger of the covenant who would come, he would rise like the sun with healing in his in his wings. So this was, was an afterthought. It was predicted long before it happened. Second thing I want to say is that it is not really a new covenant in the sense that it is something brand new. As a matter of fact, the word that's used in the Old Testament for new covenant and the word that's used in the New Testament for, for new covenant is a word that means renewed. Now, there's a Hebrew word that means something brand spanking new. The writers don't use that term. There's also a Greek word that means brand new. The writers don't use that word. They use the word that means to renew. In the Old Testament, it's the word, it's related to the word for month. That is something that comes around, you know, it's renewed every month with the lunar cycle, every 30 days or so. 
Uh, it's used in a contemporary text uh, in Old Testament times to refer to a pagan temple that was renewed. It had fallen into disrepair, so they renewed it. It's used in the New Testament in the same sense of something that's been renewed. Because you see, the fundamental covenant in the Old Testament is not a legal covenant. It's not, you do this and I'll love you. It's just the other way around. It's, I love you. I unconditionally love you. And I, I just want you to love me in response. You see, that's what God said to Abraham. He promised unequivocally, unconditionally to, Mo, to Abraham that he would bless him, that he'd enrich his life, and through him he would bless the whole world. That through him the seed would come that would once for all deal with the serpent, trample his head into the, into the dust. And that's the major covenant in the Old Testament, this covenant of God's intent to give. In fact, Paul argues in Galatians that a covenant that came 400 years later, that is, the law at Sinai, could not possibly overthrow this older covenant. And so when our Lord says there's something new going on, he's simply renewing the old covenant that's always been there. God wants to give and give and give and give. The third thing I want to say is that this covenant is eternal. That is, it has implications both ways in history. A couple of references in this text that we're going to read in a moment. One is to sins committed under the first covenant in verse 15. He has died as a ransom to set them free from sins committed under the first covenant. That is that covenant that was given at Sinai. And then again in verse 22, in fact, the law requires that everything be cleansed with blood. He's talking about the things that were sprinkled with blood that represent the old covenant. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Theologians refer to this as it's what they call the retrospective validity of the blood of Christ. Now, it's just a big, long phrase that means that the implications of, of the cross go back into history and go on into the future. The cross was an event in time. Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. But the implications of that sacrifice are eternal. I've had several people ask me, uh, you know, how were people saved in the Old Testament era since we started this study in Hebrews? A question. That's a good question to ask because it's so clear from Hebrews that we have a new arrangement now. Well, what about under the old arrangement? What about David and Solomon and and the other people in the Old Testament who struggled and who had a hard time of it and who failed? How were they forgiven? How were they saved? Was it was it that Lamb that saved them that they confessed their sins over? No. No, it was the cross of Christ, you see. That cross that is rooted in time has implications that go way back to the very beginning of human history. Paul in Romans 3.25 says that, that it was on that basis that God could pass over the sins of the past. You see, that lamb over whom a man or woman confessed their sin in Old Testament times was simply a symbol of the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. And the people of faith in the Old Testament understood that. They were looking forward. When someone would come who was the seed of the woman who would once for all crush the head of the serpent. That's why David says in Psalm 32, Oh, how happy is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. And in another of his psalms, David said, If God were to keep a record of our sins, who could stand? They understood. Cross covers the sins of the past and may also say the cross covers the sins of the future. 
which means that uh, any sin you commit in the future is paid for by the death of Christ. That's what Jesus meant when he said, it's finished, it's done, it's over, it's final. This is an eternal redemption. That phrase uh, keeps turning up in the, in, the, in the immediate context. In verse 12, he entered the most holy once for all, having obtained an eternal redemption. Uh, in verse 15, that you may receive the eternal inheritance. And then in the final chapter of the book, he refers to this new, co- new covenant as an eternal covenant. It's binding forever. So this covenant was predicted, it is renewed, and it is eternal. And it's an inheritance that we receive from our Father. That those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Uh, My father died, as you know, a couple of years ago, and he had a very small estate. In his will, he handed that estate over to my sister and to me. It was his as long as he was alive. We had no claim on it. But when he died, he passed it on to us. Now that's the argument that the, that the writer makes in the verses that follow. Let, let me read uh, to you, beginning in verse 16. Now remember again this play on words, covenant and will, because in Greek, in the Greek language, the word covenant essentially means a will, a last will and testament. In verse 16, in the case of a will, and it is the same word that's translated covenant in verse 15, it is necessary to register the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. My father enjoyed the fruit of his labor and his estate while he was living. I didn't have any right to it. It wasn't until he died that it was passed on. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. He's, as you know, he's quoting Exodus 24, the passage in which the law given on Sinai was ratified. In the same way, Moses sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. In other words, when the, when the uh, covenant given at Sinai was ratified, it was ratified by blood. Symbolically, uh, a death occurred. Now, he says in verse 23, it's necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that's not his own. Remember every year on the day of atonement the high priest brought blood into the inner sanctum to atone for the Sins of the people, Christ entered once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once 
to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time. This is his second coming. His coming for which we wait. Not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Remember the high priest went into the holy, most holy place and he made atonement on the, the place of propitiation, on the mercy seat. And then he, he came out to announce that atonement had been made. Now, I don't know what actually happened. I can, I'd like to dream that when the priest came out, he did something like that. You know, I did it. And the people, people shouted and cheered because they, they realized that sacrifice had been made. Those who had real faith, authentic faith, understood what that, what that sacrifice symbolized. It was finished, you see. And uh, I think the author is playing on that idea of the high priest having made atonement, our Lord having gone into the holy place, now comes out the second time, not to hold sin against us, not to call us on the carpet to judge us, but to announce victory once for all. It's over. It's all done. We don't have to struggle with sin any, anymore. He did all of that really. And he did all of that finally. He makes the point that people only die once. It would be ludicrous to, to think of Jesus dying over and over and over again. It wasn't necessary. He died once. The point that he wants us to understand is that the second covenant was ratified not with the blood of animals, but with the blood of God. That's how much he loves us. And that event, God himself dying for us, is what we celebrate when we gather around this table. Amazing love. How can it be? That thou, my God, should die for me. He did it once for all, for all time. Now, if you recall, our Lord gathered with his disciples in the upper room and he said to them, This is the last time I'm going to, to drink this, so, this wine with you until the kingdom comes. And he took bread and he broke it and he distributed it. Gave some to Judas. Have you ever thought about the fact that Judas was in the room with our Lord when they celebrated the Passover feast? When the time came for the, usually in a, a Jewish household, it was the father who explained the ritual. When the time came for the ritual to be explained, Jesus, who was the, obviously the leader of the apostolic band, he was the rabbi, he explained the ritual. And he changed it instead of going back to what occurred uh, in the Exodus he looked on to what was going to happen when he did, in fact, redeem his, his people out of the world. And he took the bread and he broke it and he explained it. New symbolism, new idea. Something he never thought of before. He broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant ratified by my blood. And as often as you do this, you recall, you remember, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see, it's, it's the death of God that we celebrate. That's how much he loves us. For God so loved the world, he gave. See, that's, that's God's disposition. He's a giver. I think when we were 
studying through the miracles, I pointed out that there are two creation miracles, only two creation miracles, one having to do with bread and one having to do with wine. The, the bread miracle, of course, was the feeding of the 5,000 and then the feeding of the 4,000. The Lord just took a little bit of bread and broke it and, and multiplied it. The, the wine miracle, of course, was the changing of water into wine. It took place at the marriage feast at Cana. And uh, we ask ourselves, why, why did God do that? And why did Jesus do that? Was that just uh, a good work that he wanted to do to impress people with his power? No, he did it simply because he's good. That's all. It wasn't for show. It was done quietly. As a matter of fact, you read through the story of the, the changing of water into wine. It was done over in the corner. People weren't even aware of what was going on. It wasn't done because our Lord wanted to impress people. It was done simply because he was good. People were hungry, so he fed them. They ran out of wine, so he provided wine. He's a giver. And that's what God is. He wants to give. So as we gather around this table, let's focus on this aspect of our, of our Lord's character. He just wants to give. God so loved the world that he gave. And so when we take this cup and we drink this, this wine, we remember the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take it together. Again, Lord, we are, we are simply astonished that you would love us to this extent. If we individually were the only people on the face of the earth, you would have perished for us. What amazing love. How easily we take that gift for granted. How often we come to this table and, and we take these elements and it's just ritual, it's rigmarole. It doesn't mean anything, it's a relic from the past. Rather than come with a conscious awareness of the deep, eternal love that you have for us that knows no boundary or regret or limitations, that keeps on giving. And out of that sense of Love, Lord, we want to respond. We want to give you all of ourselves. We're not our own. We're bought with a price. We want you to take our lives and do with them as you see fit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.